This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and my co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the Climate Change Editor at The Straits Times. It's the 15th of November. At the COP27 climate talks here in Egypt, a key focus is how to help poorer, more vulnerable nations cope with increasingly extreme weather events that threaten their homes, their jobs, and the food that they grow. Adapting to climate impacts has become an urgent need for billions of people around the globe. Yet the money to help them is a fraction of what's needed. At COP27, wealthy nations are under pressure to give more climate cash since they are most responsible for the emissions that are making the world's weather more dangerous. And few places are more vulnerable to climate impacts than Africa. With us today is Dr. Deborah Roberts, a leading scientist with the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, and a global expert on adaptation and urban resilience. Dr. Roberts is also head of the Sustainable and Resilient City Initiatives Unit in Durban, South Africa. So, uh, welcome to the show, Deborah. Great, great to be here, David. Now, let's start off with why adapting to climate change has become so urgent for so many people in rich and poor nations. Well, I think the science is really clear. You know, if we look to the Working Group 3 report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it indicates very clearly that we are simply not on track to limit global warming to 1.5. Our current emissions are the highest they've ever been in our history. And the Global Carbon Project has just released their uh, 2022 report, which indicates our emissions continue to increase. So if we've got an increasingly warm climate, and that's driving changes in systems such as sea level rise, we're seeing changes in patterns of precipitation, increased frequency, um, intensity and duration of extreme events, those changes have to be responded to. And that's why adaptation is the new priority agenda, I believe, for the 21st century. And what are some examples of adaptation needs, uh, particularly for uh, Africa, which is where you come from? So, I mean, the, the, the challenge with adaptation, it's not like mitigation, where there's a singular solution. We understand the greenhouse gases and we know that reducing those and preventing their emission in the first place is the way to go. Adaptation is much more context specific. So it's not really possible to provide a shopping list of the must-do adaptation actions for the globe. And this is why you'll see in the work that we do in Working Group 2, we've got a much more regional focus, looking at those contextual elements, societal needs, cultural backgrounds. Um, But if we look to to Africa, probably the biggest adaptation need is basic development. I think our report indicates you cannot separate out the climate response from development anymore. So a huge adaptation opportunity is providing basic infrastructure and basic services. In key sectors for Africa, such as water, things like soil moisture conservation, integrated water management becomes important. Irrigation well planned and and well executed becomes important. Securing water for cities. In terms of things like food security, obviously there, things like agroforestry, agricultural diversification, 
using indigenous knowledge to inform how we respond to, to the changing climate. And then Africa is the fastest urbanizing continent in the world. So there our report talks a lot about using blue and green and gray infrastructure together in an integrated way. It talks about urban agriculture as a potential way of improving food security, but also social safety nets to allow people to deal with impacts of climate change and improve financial security within this increasingly complex environment. So unfortunately, there isn't a silver bullet for adaptation as there is for mitigation. We've got to look at the context. But for Africa as a whole, it's, it's a basic developmental need is a key part of improving resilience on the continent. Now, of course, we're here at COP27. So a lot of the adaptation needs that you've just mentioned, I guess, have really been discussed here in, in great detail. What I would imagine, so I'm not following the, the negotiations mm. as, as such, um, that's uh, being undertaken by the negotiators, but certainly in terms of the work that the IPCC has done at the COP, which is about bringing the science um, out to a, a place where people are aware of what the key messages are. We, we've been having discussion across all of these, these issues as regards adaptation, the need for a more urgent focus on adaptation as the climate changes and we approach um, a, a 1.5 degree of, of global warming, we need to recognize that not every region in the world is heating as fast as the others. So for example, the part of the world that I come from, the Southern African region is heating twice as fast as the global average, which means we're already at 2.2. So we've already gone through the 1.5 barrier. Um, and as a result of that, a lot of these discussions are now happening. What happens if there's too much water, too little water, not enough food or not enough food in the right places, not enough nutritious food because nutrition uh, will be impacted by climate change as well. So a lot of those conversations are are happening in, in the discussions inside events and mandated events. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that information is, is also influencing the discussions amongst the negotiators. Now, it's not just about people, uh, it's also about nature. So you co-chaired a recent major IPCC report focusing on impacts adaptation and vulnerability from climate change. So why is it so important to look, also to look at how nature is being affected by climate change? And could you give us a few examples of adaptation measures that can reduce risks for oceans as well as agriculture? So yes, that report on impacts, adaptation, vulnerability was the working group two report. I've you know, referred to the working group three report. And our strong message was, you've got to think about our response to climate change much more systemically, because the human system, so our built and infrastructural environment, the climate system and the natural system are all interrelated. And so we draw in very strongly the narrative that our well-being and our livelihoods are supported by natural ecosystems and biodiversity and ecosystem services um, that they deliver. So they're an important part of increasing our adaptive capacity. So there's an enormous opportunity in that sense. But the ecosystems themselves are impacted by our activities and climate change because of this, this relationship. And so we are finding as a situation, while there's huge untapped potential in using nature to help us adapt to the impacts of climate change to uh, deal with the causes of climate change, nature itself has limits. Um, and we indicate very clearly in our assessment above 1.5 degrees Celsius, some of the, the, the nature-based solutions that we talk about may no longer be available because the ecosystem themselves have reached their limits of, of mm -hmm. adaptation. 
but just talking to the, the two areas you were, were most interested in, if, if we look at oceans um, and adaptation in that, that arena, those are very broad ranging. So we speak about the importance of multi-level governance. So there isn't just one level of government who can deal with the um, adaptation issues in, in the context of, of oceans. We speak about early warning systems as an important part of dealing with the hazards that may emerge from, from the oceans. But we also speak about things like sustainable harvesting. We speak about conservation and restoration of, of natural uh, ecosystems within in the marine environment, all as important uh, mechanisms for, for adaptation. In terms of, of agriculture, some of the key adaptation uh, approaches there are stress-tolerant crops and uh, livestock, mm -hmm. agroforestry, landscape and, and farm diversification, um, community-based adaptation, particularly that uh, adaptation that draws on local and indigenous knowledge and, and is well-resourced, but also the use of biodiversity because that helps us with things like crop pollination and crop pest control. So those are important uh, opportunities. But as I say, as the temperature increases, mm. the efficacy of all of these nature-based solutions decreases and some of these ecosystems will reach limits. And in our assessment, we showed that there will be some ecosystems, for example, the mountaintops and the coastal wetlands and the tropical coral reefs that will likely go extinct above 1.5. So we will lose that whole set of ecosystem right. services that come with those. So we've got to be very mindful of the, the temperature um, when we talk about ecosystem-based adaptation. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, cities, of course, are very vulnerable to climate impacts as well, uh, from floods to heat waves to storms. And your home city of Durban in South Africa was struck earlier this year by devastating floods that had, I think, a quite a strong climate change signature. So tell us how the floods affected uh, Durban and your own experience of that. Yeah, and you know, cities are wonderful things because they give us the economies of scale, which allow that we, uh, you know, allow the ability to be effective in our response to climate change, but they also con concentrate people and infrastructure. Mm. So when you get floods, as, as we did in April and May, that has a profound impact, particularly in a city which has almost 600 informal settlements. So you've got a large number of people who've got very high exposure and very high vulnerability to climate hazards like like uh, heavy precipitation events. So the impact, sadly, in, in the city and the province I come from is, you know, close to 500 people died mm. uh, in, in the storms. There was very large-scale infrastructural damage. Our port, which is the largest port on the east coast of Africa, was effectively mm. shut down because of the damage to the infrastructure that services that port. That obviously has economic repercussions, not only for our city, but our country and, and the region mm. at large. And key infrastructure, such as our wastewater infra infrastructure, was very badly damaged. And we're still seeing the impacts of that now. We're still seeing that damaged infrastructure leading to pollution of our rivers, the need for us to close beaches, which is problematic for a tourist center yeah. as well. We've had some communities who've been without water for seven months, obviously leading to huge um, social and, and um, distress and civil unrest linked to, to that lack of provision. So you can see mm. how profound the impact is. And this really just talks to the findings of our report, which indicates that for Africa, one of the most vulnerable regions in the world, we're already experiencing 
high levels of losses and damages um, mm. across all spectrums. And, and Durban is, you know, just a, a poster child for that after the heavy precipitation. Now, of course, related to this, there are something like 4.2 billion people living in cities now. And as the world population keeps growing, of course, more and more people are going to shift to urban centers. So is it possible to make cities climate proof or is there a limit to, you know, to adaptation, to making them resilient? Great question, David. I've, I've always felt that that term climate proof is extremely dangerous because what it indicates is that there is an end to the climate response project, that there will come in time a point mm. at which we are entirely resilient to climate change. And that's not what the science is telling us. The science is telling us that our emissions are continuing to grow, that uh, global warming is continuing to increase, that we have an increasingly warming world. We're seeing an increase in uh, the frequency and intensity of extreme events. And not only are we experiencing single extreme events, but we're experiencing multiple extreme events coming together, creating compound and cascading risks, which are much more difficult to manage. And over and above that, we've got some changes like sea level rise, which is essentially irreversible in timelines that make you know, sense to us as, as human beings. So I think that lays out a, a, a narrative which is very clearly indicating that we are going to be adapting for the foreseeable future. So you cannot climate-proof a city. What you can do is contribute through city actions to ambitious mitigation, because while we might focus on adaptation, your ultimate source of adaptation is mitigation. You know, because it, it reduces the stress on, on the, the climate system, on the natural system and, and the human system. It keeps adaptation options open. It allows us to avoid some of the key adaptation limits that I've spoken about. So really what we need to be looking at is not climate proofing um, our, our cities. I think that's an idea that just doesn't have any traction, but really pursuing climate resilient development uh, through, through the process of urbanization and that concept is really about bringing together ambitious mitigation, risk reduction through adaptation, but with a view to achieving sustainable development because a key part of this response has to be us keeping an eye on the equity and justice issues of our response. We can't allow our climate responses because we are being urged to act rapidly um, and ambitiously. We can't allow those responses to have negative impacts for, for the poor and vulnerable. So it's that package um, that I think is important, climate resilient development as opposed to climate proofing, which implies that there is an end and the science is simply indicating that there is no foreseeable end to the need to adapt to change. So that sort of leads to my final question. So is there really a limit to adapting climate change? I, I guess there isn't, right? And then what happens when the impacts or loss and damage become too great and too costly? So you know, communities, for example, would slide deeper into poverty or migration to uh, safer areas. So you have increasing numbers of climate migrants mm -hmm. leading to different pressures. So maybe give me a sense as to where this will all head in terms of if we don't mitigate or cut emissions deeply enough, are we in for a world where it's just no longer possible to adapt? And, and that's very clear. The science is very clear about that. If, if we don't put a cap on emissions, if we don't head towards net zero in, in 2015, we see a continuous increase in temperature. We know that as temperature increases, the effectiveness of our adaptation options decreases across all sectors. Mm. And so you will get a point uh, where we exceed either the social limits for adaptation or the physiological limits. I mean, there will be some places that simply become too hot 
to live in. You won't be able to work outdoors. Livestock won't be able to survive outdoors. Um, or the ecosystems that you're reliant on, and Africa is a good case where we're very reliant on our ecosystems. They themselves will be so impacted, they won't be able to uh, underpin our, our adaptive capacity. So there are very real limits in terms of, of adaptation very strongly linked to the levels of global warming. So if we do shoot through 1.5 um, and begin to approach some of the higher temperatures too, or the 3.2 that Working Group 3 speaks about, Working Group 3 tells us that if we continue on with the plans and policies we've got, we could be looking at global warming of, of 3.2 degrees Celsius, which in my part of the world will mean over six. Now that makes it totally unlivable. So what are the options mm. under those sets of circumstances where you can't adapt? Um, certainly migration is, is something that's spoken about, but our assessment of migration indicates that migration is happening within countries or between countries, and it's generally the middle class that migrates because they've got the resources too. Whereas the poor have far fewer resources and locked in place. And this begins to create you know, the potential for humanitarian disasters at scale. I was in a side event yesterday looking at the drought in the Horn of Africa. We're going into the fifth season without rain in, in that area. And, and there you can see the adaptive capacity of both the humanitarian sector, the local population has really been stressed to its limits. And so really under that set of circumstances, it's very difficult to imagine how you begin to respond if large portions of the world uh, are, are affected in a sense that they physiologically can't live in areas, if they don't have resources to move, if their livelihoods have been totally taken away, and if the ecosystems they rely on, in the case of the poor and vulnerable, are entirely gone, it begins to create a, 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 a large-scale challenge that I, I don't think we would be able to, to manage effectively with, with existing approaches. So that's quite a concerning picture of, you know, of the future, which I guess makes... The work of the IPCC is so important in giving policymakers and businesses who have gathered here at COP27 a clear direction of travel. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. Great. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, that's a wrap for Greenhouse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Greenhouse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.